Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Hearing Galatians in translation and out of context, it's tempting to conclude that St. Paul is arguing for some new alternative to the teaching of the Old Testament. But for those who make an effort to hear the text in context, it becomes quickly clear that Paul's letter is not only reading and explaining, but applying the Torah to the church in Galatia. At the center of this wrangle is Jerusalem's misreading of the meaning of circumcision in Genesis. In our discussion of Galatians chapter 5, Richard and I compare the abuse of circumcision in Genesis chapter 34 with its misuse at the hands of Peter and James. You're listening to the Bible as Literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 98 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Before we dive into Galatians chapter 5, I thought it would be worthwhile to review another example from Genesis that demonstrates that Paul's argument about circumcision and Jerusalem's misuse of circumcision or misinterpretation of circumcision or hypocrisy surrounding circumcision is not a new argument, that Paul is himself drawing on the story of Genesis to show the church in Jerusalem that in Genesis already the way that they're dealing with circumcision is explicitly condemned. And the example I want to call to mind here is not the one we've spoken of earlier, which is Abraham's household and the actual covenant of circumcision, including foreigners and household slaves and so forth. But in chapter 34 of Genesis, you have an example where the sons of Jacob, who are of course wicked, who commit several terrible acts, not the least of which is their betrayal of Joseph. The sons of Jacob are upset because they discover that Shechem forced himself sexually upon their sister Dina. But the father of Shechem comes to Jacob and submits to the rule in Exodus that if a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the marriage present for her and make her his wife. So it's interesting. You have a foreigner who is not under the covenant of circumcision, who has not received the Torah, who is approaching Jacob and behaving exactly as Exodus demands in these circumstances. And suddenly, out of the blue, you have Jacob's sons who are human beings imposing circumcision as a mechanism of human judgment when the Torah itself does not call for circumcision as a mechanism of restitution. What's interesting is that Hamor accepts the condition that he and his son and their entire household should be circumcised. So that's two things he did correctly to atone for the mistake of his son Shechem, who actually really loved the girl. So what happens? He goes and they go to the gate of the city, which is where the elders gather. Don't think of it as the door. Think of it as the place where all the wise men go to talk and discuss important matters, like the town hall. 
So he goes to the town hall and convinces everyone to be circumcised. And then what do Jacob's sons do? They go, they take the sword, and they slaughter the entire community. Now how can you take the covenant of circumcision and impose it where the law itself does not require it to be imposed? And in imposing it and claiming that you're doing it according to God's will, you're actually imposing it according to your will to enable you to kill people. The whole point of circumcision is to say that these people who are circumcised are one people. And that's even questionable the way that they bring it up. But let's give them benefit of the doubt because the people said, okay, we'll do it. Once they do it, they're now your brothers. They are now part of the household of Abraham. And so what Levi and Simeon led was the death of their new brothers. This is even worse than the imposing of circumcision. They use circumcision to their own end, which is to force this extra rule upon the people of the city, but then use that as a way to not just oppress them, but to murder them. Note that in both cases, in the case of circumcision, and in the case of God's rule in Exodus 22, dealing with this particular situation, Both laws are given as a custodian to take care of the people, to help them do the right thing, to avoid bloodshed, to facilitate inclusiveness and potentially hospitality, and instead you have genocide. So there's a clear analogy in my mind between what the sons of Jacob are doing in Genesis and what the sons of Jacob are doing in Galatians. Because remember, Jacob's name is also Israel. So metaphors in this situation abound. Well, Jacob's name is also James. Exactly. So here we are now, the same sin being committed, and this gives you a little bit of context in what's going on in Galatians. So Paul is not saying something was wrong with circumcision. Once again, he's saying that you are misinterpreting and misusing, even abusing the covenant of circumcision for your own agenda, not God's agenda. Right. And let me bring up another theme that I think is important, this understanding of what it means to be under the law. In the ancient world, if you were the king, your job was to impose the law on people. And so the king was above the law. If you look at the Code of Hammurabi, you look at the Steli, and the king is receiving this law from God, which means that the king is speaking on behalf of God. And then there are all the decisions that he made. Okay, if this happens, then this is going to happen. If this happens, then this is going to happen. And they write that all down and memorialize it and say, look how wise our king Hammurabi was because he imposed this law upon people and it was a just law. And that's how you can tell how wonderful our king was is because not only did he impose the law, it was a just law that he imposed because you can have a stupid king who imposes stupid rules on people and stupid laws on people. So this is what it means to be the one who dispatches the law. Now, when Paul says you are all under the law, it means that it is not you who dispatches the law. Absolutely correct. And this I really want to emphasize because Paul has been emphasizing it. When he says you are all under the law, it means you do not dispatch the law. You are not given the right to then make the judgment over others. When when he emphasizes you're all the same, that's Jew and Gentile, it's male and female, no one is there to judge another. Even the husband cannot judge his wife. But isn't this the point that we've made often when we critique those who would say that the church wrote the New Testament. The church gave us the biblical canon. This text belongs to the church. This 
is blasphemous talk. It's very commonplace in the church in the United States for all kinds of reasons relating to insecurities about people's background in the Protestant community and the emphasis, the supposed emphasis of the Bible in the Protestant community, which I think is waning in any case. But to try to resolve that tension about competing interpretations by saying, I wrote the judgment is blasphemy. Because if you are not under the same law as the Protestants, we're not talking about the scriptural God anymore. What are we talking about? I don't know. I think another form of idolatry, the same way that Paul, as you've explained, is accusing James and Peter of idolatry. Is it your Bible, James? Is it your Torah? Or does it belong to God? And if so, on what throne are you sitting? It's the difference between saying, but Abraham was commanded to circumcise his household and every generation afterwards. Yes, this is true. And we were circumcised. Yes, this is true. Okay, but they aren't. True, they aren't circumcised. Those are all just facts. Those are all indisputable. But then once you say... Therefore, they should be. Therefore, they must be. Why aren't you? This is when you start rising to the level of being above the law. And violating the principle we discussed in previous episodes that when you read scripture, it's fine if you apply it to yourself, but you can't apply it to your neighbor. You can't apply it to your neighbor. As soon as it becomes something that you impose on your neighbor... That's when you become King Hammurabi, who's been given the law directly from God, and now you have the right to give your pronouncements. You do not have the right to pronounce because you are under the law. If someone approaches you with a question or a problem, all you can do is open the scroll with them and Mm -hmm. read. You can and you must hold each other accountable in community. But isn't that the key? In community where people accept this relationship and where the foundation of the relationship is the authority of the scroll. The James Party didn't come up with this just because they're crazy. It says very clearly in Genesis, everyone in your household has to be circumcised. James can easily say, look, Paul, we want him to be in the household. We agree on this. We want Gentiles in the household. We're all agreeing on this. What we're not agreeing on is the important nuance that James is missing that so many religious fundamentalists miss that God is God. You are not God. Right. This is what Paul says. Okay, James, if we all want them to be part of the household, then your job is to treat them as one who's in the household, not to decide whether they're in the household and or not. And this is what Genesis means. Genesis does not mean this is God, this is man, which is how theologians and anthropologists destroy the text. There's no anthropology in Genesis. It's anti-anthropos. Genesis is saying, you are not God. And Paul is telling James and Peter, you are not God. Stop acting like it. Stop it. You did not write the Bible. Stop. The Jewish people did not give the Bible to the world. God gave the Bible to the world. Now, if you want to go and do a sociological study and figure out how the text, fine. It doesn't matter. The point is that if you accept scripture, you accept it as being from God, which dismantles all these mechanisms of human deification. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. I set you free from the gods of men, and now you are putting yourself under the gods again to no avail, to no purpose. 
go back to chapter 4, Christ was crucified to show that those who are cursed by the law are not then cursed by God necessarily, because God is the only one who's over the law. God is the only one who dispatches the law. And God can say, yes, I know he broke the law, but I decided not to punish him. Oh, I know he's unrighteous. He broke all these laws. However, I declared he's righteous. Behold, I, Paul, say to you, that if you receive circumcision, here he's speaking on personal authority, it's very forceful language. If you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you because you still want to prove that if I can just be a good Jew, then I'll be in. No, that's not the case. There are no good Jews and there are no good Christians. If you receive circumcision, it's because you're trying to do something that shows that you're righteous and Christ died so that you could be free from all these check boxes you're trying to check off. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. And if you do so in Deuteronomy, you end up six feet under, which you're going to end up anyways. Right. So what is it you're trying to do? You've got 600 boxes. And if you don't get 100%, You're condemned, and you ticked off one box. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law, parenthetically the work of your own hands. You have fallen from grace, meaning you think you can do it. You don't need God to give it to you as a free gift. Now, some people, when they hear you have been severed from Christ, they think that, oh, Christ doesn't love you, or there's this distance between you and Christ, or you're no longer in Christ's community. What Paul is saying here is that the mechanism that Christ is demonstrating, that the one who is cursed is the one who sits at the right hand of God. And if you're circumcised and keeping kosher and you're an upstanding member of the synagogue, you're not cut off like Jesus. Exactly. You're not cut off like Jesus. And so you have to understand that it is how you embrace that curse, understanding that you are not able to make yourself righteous. This is the thing. When you go to be circumcised, you're trying to make yourself righteous. There are lots of other things you can try to do to make yourself righteous. Every single one of those goes against Christ, who died clearly not righteous because of his curse. Which is why in verse 5, we, through the Spirit by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness, which means that it is coming with Christ through the judgment of the kingdom that is ahead of you. Right. It's only a hope of righteousness. Just like Christ died with a hope of his father's ability to save him. In other words, you are going to die and you are going to be at the mercy of the Lord who is coming in judgment to decide when he raises you whether or not you're righteous. And it won't be on the basis of your efforts because if you're already dead, how can you be righteous? How can someone who dies be righteous since death is unclean? God has to declare you righteous. Just as you said, he declared Jesus righteous when he reversed the decision of the human court For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. And again, when you hear faith, you have to read trust because all of us deep down inside are bloody imperialists. And we believe what we learned from Roman paganism, that you need to find out what the faith of the empire is and make everyone conform because Romans, like McDonald's, look the same on every continent. That is not what's being said here. Right. And I like the addition here that Paul brings into the argument of faith working through love. How do you show your trust? It's trust working through love, loving the other demonstrates your trust in God. And what is the trust? The trust in God is that God will provide for you, not necessarily in the way that God provides for the emperor, but the way that God provided for Jesus. 
when he died, he was declared righteous. So neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is going to help your actions of love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. And again, this metaphor of running is very interesting because you are running a race. You are working under the Torah. But what you're doing under the Torah is working to serve God's instruction not to serve the flesh. This is the point of the Sabbath in Genesis. It doesn't mean that you rest. It means that you rest from human strivings in order to commit yourself and to dedicate your life to the work of God's teaching. And by submitting to James, I mean, when he asks, who fooled you? It didn't come from God, the one who calls you. We know that he's referring to James and Peter. He's saying, by slaving for James and Peter, you are not fulfilling the commandment of the Sabbath. It's all vanity. And then there's this beautiful expression in verse 9. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. Here, you have to think of the leaven as agitation. In other words, Paul is using the one who is fooling you into going back on your freedom in Christ. He's using that agitation as leaven, the way that God uses the persecution of foreign nations against Israel and the prophets. You can view the attack of Babylon or the abuse of the Egyptians as being persecution, poor me, I'm a victim, or you can view it as a little bit of leaven that God sends to agitate the situation unto instruction. So Paul is using Peter and James here unto instruction. And with the little leaven, the difference between Paul and James may be very subtle because they're both reading Genesis. They're both reading about Abraham and the circumcision, and they both understand that the circumcision was given to Abraham as the promise, and they're aligned on so many different things. But this one point of trust working through love is the leaven that makes this lump into bread. And that difference, that slight difference in teaching can disrupt the whole outcome. In the ancient world, leaven sometimes could go bad. And so if you had bad leaven in dough, it would ruin the bread. And so having the correct leaven in there and making sure the leaven was healthy determined how your bread was going to end up. But the key, this is how scripture co-opts fate in order to make its point. And that's exactly what Paul's doing. He's being thoroughly scriptural. Something is happening that Paul could interpret as just being bad. And he could be bitter and frustrated. He could say, why are James and Peter fighting me? Poor me. I'm working so hard for the gospel and James and Peter are fighting me. But he chooses to view this as God's will for the sake of the teaching, which makes the agitation useful unto life to give bread to the people it's very powerful and this is important because this is the solution to all of your psychological problems in life if you choose to view everything the good and the bad as coming from the hand of god you are choosing to view everything as being a gift which puts you in the frame of mind to be thankful which casts off bitterness and insecurity it casts off the victim mentality you suddenly realize that everything is in the hand of God. This is the ultimate mechanism of trust. Paul's trust is to such a degree that he views his opponents as being gift from God. You don't get more radical than that. And look what he says in the next verse. 
I have confidence in you in the Lord that you will adopt no other view. And here he's not saying, I have confidence in the Galatians. He's saying, I trust the teaching that is at work in you. But the one who is disturbing you, the agitator, will bear his judgment, whoever he is. So this is exactly what he says about the Jews and Romans. It's true that because you stumbled, the Galatians are brought in, which makes your stumbling into 11. But it doesn't mean it's okay that you stumbled. That's the nuance. It's very powerful. But now Paul no longer has to be bitter or frustrated, and the Galatians have no right to cast blame. Because were it not for Peter and James's mistake, the Galatians wouldn't have grown in the gospel. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. And we've covered this in previous discussions. Because again, you are saying that you don't need the failure of Christ, you need the victory of James and Peter with their religious customs. I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. And here, this is a very nice way of saying, if they're so convinced they can do it themselves, let's see them perform circumcision on themselves and see how that turns out. If they're so intent on applying this law wherever they can, I think the first place they should apply it is upon themselves. And this is what I was saying before. We do not have the right to impose God's instruction on others. We only have the right to impose it on ourselves. And this is what he's saying. I wish that they would just impose this on themselves. Yes, and with that added extra punch of saying, and let's see how it turns out for them. Because we all know it'll be a bloody mess mess. if they try to self-circumcise. For you are called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, which is the will of man, the things that pass away, but through love. And here we get to the point of the law, serve one another. And this is essential because this is the basis for what Paul does with the freedom. You were given this freedom. You're never going to fulfill the law. The natural reaction is going to be like, okay, well, if I can't fulfill the law anyway, I'm not going to bother trying. If I can't do anything right, why should I bother even trying? Why should I do anything? And so how does your freedom not become laziness? Once you're free, you have a vacuum. Okay, what am I going to do? It's like a person coming out of prison and going into the free world. Okay, now I can do anything I want. And it's a terrible kind of freedom. How do I decide what to do next? What you do in the place of that law that you had received, that you thought you had to be fulfilling all these tick boxes, fulfill them through acts of love. Be loving to others. Do what you can to love. And he already said above, faith working through love, which is trust working through love. And here it's don't use your freedom to start imposing things on others for getting gain for yourself because now you're free. Well, he comes to that, right? So he says in 14, this verse, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting Leviticus here. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. And this verse speaks to what you were saying earlier about verse 12, that you have to apply it to yourself, not to your neighbor. If you try to apply it to your neighbor, then you're going to be devouring one another and you will not be fulfilling the purpose of the teaching. But I say walk by the Spirit, which means that which comes from God, the teaching, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh, which is that that comes from man, the human word, the human logos, human reason. It's the love that is inspiring the actions. And inspiring, I use that word deliberately because it means the actions of love are the ones that are inspired. And I'm not talking about a supernatural 
force here. I'm saying that you can tell what is the motivation of a human being. Is it trust in God or is it not trust in God? And here's the thing. If I see my brother and my brother is not fulfilling the law, and as a brother, I go to him and I say, I noticed this. I think it might be better if you did this thing. And they're like, you're full of baloney. Then I say, out of trust in God, okay, maybe I was wrong. And that's what you, you don't say, no, I really do think you need to stop. You can't insist on it. You insist on it. This is building up your own flesh. This is building up your own point of view. And it's imposing it upon the other person and saying the other person should not be able to act in their own freedom, out of the freedom that their own conscience would push them to. And so what you say is, I have trust in God that for whatever reason this person is doing this, and out of trust in God, I'm going to continue to love this person. And that's what I need to do. I need to love this person and allow them freedom. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. In other words, God's law opposes human nature. That's clear. It opposes your biology. I think my brother should be doing this thing, but he's going to continue doing that thing. So you can either go by the flesh and impose your will upon him and therefore be dispatching the law, or you can love him and submit to him and therefore be following the spirit. Now, if you're led by the spirit, you are not under the law. And I think the important thing here to understand is does not conflict with Paul's statement that you have to put yourself under the Torah. It means that you are not saved by the work of your own hands. And you can see how it's such a nuanced argument and how in translation it would be so confusing for people. But let's be clear. If you are led by the Spirit, which is the understanding of God's instruction, your trust in God's instruction, then you are not striving to fulfill a set of regulations in order to make yourself better than your neighbor, which leads to everyone devouring each other. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And here, Paul is saying what Matthew says. That until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota will pass away from the Torah. Meaning Paul is making it clear, I am not saying that you can now go and violate all of these behavioral teachings of the Old Testament. Because this is a classic list of sins from the Bible. So you're not off the hook. But then in verse 22, he switches gears. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now, Father Paul Tarazi, in his commentary on Galatians, makes the point that all of these things, as you said earlier, proceed from love. And what's striking is that Paul isn't just writing in a Jewish context in late antiquity. He's also writing in a Roman context. And Roman society had come to embrace Hellenism. Now, if you look at all of the catalogs of the virtues within the Hellenistic religious and philosophical traditions, you have all kinds of things listed as virtues, but no one ever lists love. Love is never included as one of the pinnacle virtues. And here, Scripture is only talking about love. So there's a marked difference between what Paul is saying and the Greeks are saying, and a marked difference between what Paul is saying and Peter and James are saying. You're not under the law, but if you follow love, notice 
you won't end up breaking the law. Isn't it funny how Haran, after Shechem, who loved the daughter of Jacob, how Haran came to Jacob and without being told, because the whole scene was motivated by love and a desire for reconciliation, was following Exodus. That's the point. This is what Paul is saying. You can't make a decision about people outside your community because if they are motivated by love, they're already in God's household. How can you say otherwise? Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, meaning by joining yourself to Christ who failed and accepting your own failure, you become like Christ laying in the ground. I mean, Abraham was as good as dead. Well, guess what? Jesus Christ was dead. Dead, dead. Dead, dead, which means he was completely at the mercy of God the Father in a way that Abraham never was. Just as Christ's death was on display and the curse of the cross was on display, he was declared righteous by his Father. So those who are full of passions and desires are on display with the hope that God will be merciful and declare them righteous. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. This is, again, Torah. You cannot walk according to your own will, which is the flesh. This is the brilliance of the argument. They are talking about circumcision. They are talking about God's law. But what they are really talking about is the will of Peter and James. And this is why you cannot anthropomorphize anything. You cannot ontologize anything. You have to deal with scripture functionally. And then you can see that someone who's not baptized could be manifesting Jesus Christ, and someone who is baptized could be manifesting Satanas. The walking is so important because when someone is in the hospital, you don't love him with your heart. You love him with your feet, and you go and you visit him. And that's what I like about this. Okay, if we live by the Spirit. Okay, we were given this freedom through Christ. Isn't that wonderful? No, 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 it's not wonderful. It's only wonderful once you decide to go and do actions that accord with this Spirit that you were given. The Spirit is what animates us. And if our actions are manifesting this love, then we know that we are animated by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Thanks very much, Dr. Benson. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.